What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Khadr, AIA. My name is Atif Khadr, and this is Conversations with Michael Graves. We are recording from the iconic home of architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. That is right next to the office of the world-renowned design firm that bears his name. In this series, we will hear the stories of American buildings from the perspective of the architects and developers who are constructing them. They will talk about the process and the product on a deeply personal level, highlighting the teamwork, integrity, ingenuity, empathy, and commitment that is necessary to produce these works of art gracing the skylines of our cities and towns. Today, our guest is John Picard. John is a founder and principal at Picard Chilton, an award-winning design firm based in Connecticut. We will be talking about 2 Plus U, also known as the Qualtrics Tower. The studio's recently completed 690,000 square foot next generation office complex in the heart of downtown Seattle. 2 Plus U consists of two separate towers of 38 stories and 18 stories joined atop a common podium. It has 19,000 square feet of retail and restaurants over two floors, as well as an underground parking garage. It tops out at 530 feet, offering stunning views of Elliott Bay. The developer of the project is Skanska USA, and the total project budget was $392 million. John, thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. So to get started, you started Pickard Chilton with your partner, Bill Chilton. Before that, you were working at a firm just down the street from your current office, Caesar Pelly and Associates. What did you take from that experience and use as you were launching your own firm? Well, I had the privilege of collaborating with Caesar for 18 years. And um, toward the end of my tenure with Caesar, we worked side by side on some very exciting projects. The most, the latest project, the last project of, of renown would be the, the Petronas uh, Towers in Kuala Lumpur and the National Symphony. And I learned so many lessons from Caesar. Um, and in essence, the decision that Bill and I made to form a company was to, to take all the things we learned from our previous partnerships, and particularly we looked to Mr. Pelle as our professional father, and to see if we could do what they do, which is to create vital, rich cities, uh, and to serve a client at the highest level and make buildings that make a meaningful difference in people's lives. And so we came together, we'd been classmates at Iowa State way back in our youth, and we'd gone our separate paths. We came together and then within practically weeks of our coming together, we brought in our third partner, Anthony Marchese, and so together we created Picard Shelton. And I think one of the things I wanna talk about today as we discuss 2NU, um, architecture is a team sport. And we were talking about that earlier with Joe and the Michael Graves office. It's very much a team sport. And uh, we're proud of that. And I think that aspect is going to influence much of what we discuss here with 2 and you. Your client roster over the years from that initial year um, has grown to include a who's who of corporate America, from ExxonMobil to Uber. How did you grow into the specialty of corporate office design? And how did you gain such a large and diverse group of office clients? Well, I th- I'd like to think that we bring a couple things to our practice. Um, The first thing we do is we listen actively to what our clients are trying to achieve. And we bring profound discipline to the process of architecture. Uh, We have been benefited because uh, because of our previous affiliations with Mr. Pelly, clients have gotten to know what we could do. They gave Picard Chilton opportunities early on that might not come to fledgling architectural studios. And we have, I hopefully, substantiated their trust that they've placed in us. 
So what happens is it just builds. And so, for instance, our first corporate headquarters was for the world's largest pension fund, CalPERS, in Sacramento. And that was actually a very nice starter project. We were competing Your with... Your first project rather first, than a townhouse our, renovation. Literally, Bill and I had just signed our partnership deal. And we had a proposal due. That was on a Friday. The proposal was due on a Monday. We had no letterhead. We had nothing. So we ginned up letterhead. We cooked up this proposal. We sent it off. And we said, ah, that's going to be toast. And lo and behold, not only were we shortlisted, but we had to compete with Bill Pedersen, Gene Cohn of KPF, and, of course, the partnership at SOM. Fortunately, we were selected, and the, the rest is history. So to answer the question, we're just, we're just building on that layer of discipline and trust to advance our practice. So from that first project to 2 plus U, the selection process for uh, 2 plus U is quite a bit different than that one. That was a design hackathon. Could you talk about sure. the structure well, and how that worked? In, in any selection process, what a client is endeavoring to do <clears throat> is figure out is this firm a good match for what we're trying to do? Do they listen? Do they care? Do we have shared values? And I think what we learned on the hackathon is, the hackathon is a very catchy word. It was really an extended conversation. Uh, call it a competition, if you will. We often refer to it as a bake-off in the office. Um, Did everyone that was competing know who else was competing? We had a sense. And at the very end, we did know who we were competing with. In the front end, it was a little bit fuzzy. But what was good about the hackathon is it allowed us to have an extended conversation and we could understand their vision. They could understand what we cared about. And I think that's you, you, when you select an architect, you want an architect whose values align with your, your values. And so if the architect doesn't care about uh, contributing to the vitality of the city or really passionately care about the efficiency of the building, the cost of the building, then you know, maybe that's not quite the right match. And in this extended conversation with Skanska, um, I think they understood um, that, that we were the right partner. And, and frankly, I think it's been substantiated not only by the success of 2NU, but we're continuing to do additional work for a great company, Skanska. So in this context, would you say that Skanska was not a typical client in terms of their selection process? Yes, I think, that's, I think they were exceptional. They took the process extremely seriously. They did the research on the candidates. Uh, they structured it. Uh, for instance, so often uh, a proposal for architectural services will be about as flat foot as it comes. They'll say, I want 500,000 square feet of office and parking for X, period. What Skanska did is they painted word pictures of things that they thought might influence the design. And then what we tried to do is we built on those word pictures. We created images that would say, we haven't designed the building, but these are the kinds of things we want to aspire to. And at the end of the day, I, what I think what was important for us is Skanska had a vision of what it means to build a proper building in the heart of a great city like Seattle uh, that would, in fact, be more than just an office building, that would, would enhance the, the life of the city. And I think they concurred that we were a good choice for that. So let's talk about the location that you mentioned. So over the past five years, there's been a lot of construction in downtown Seattle, including the demolition of Rainier Square Mall and the following construction, the restoration of Town Hall and the construction of F5 Tower. The demolition of the viaduct and elevated highway is what really made this site valuable. Why was that? And could you talk more about that process? Well, the, you know, the site is quite interesting because it, it exists and they selected it it's kind of at a confluence of multiple forces, and those forces allowed us to create some magic. So we had the uh, kind of the, call it the conventional CBD financial district to the east. We had just kind of kitty corner the arts district, the Seattle Art Museum, the Symphony. We had the Pike Place Market, and then of course Elliott Bay and Puget Sound. And we were at the, kind of the nexus of all that. I think the expression that I, I give credit to Skanska, I think they called it a scene, but uh, it was really what we did was to try to take advantage of the energy that all these multiple districts were exerting. And so as we thought about it, with the viaduct coming down, you suddenly had this window to the water that had been previously blocked. And so we could integrate some of the scales of the adjacent districts you know, to, to the water. The buildings are capped by the height limit. 
and they're you know a couple stories tall. So we could we wanted to integrate that in the design, and we can talk about later about how the smaller scale kind of flows under, and we integrate the scale from the CBD and the and the tower. But honestly, the site was everything in the design of the tower. And two plus U refers to it's a, the Second Avenue and University, okay. and and so our client wisely just made it succinct. You know, one of the I'd like to say, because it's going to influence a lot of the questioning, is as we talk about 2NU, there is an overarching uh, issue out there that I think is important. We're in, uh, I won't call it a revolution, but it, that's the word that comes to my mind, in the design of the workplace. Um, the economy is superheated, and every, uh, we've done, I think, 15 Fortune 500 headquarters in the last few years. These companies... 15 Fortune 500 headquarters. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. And these companies are looking to retain and engage their workforce. Um, it's about how do they effectively compete. And at the end of the day, as we talk about 2NU, the, the overriding principle is how do we allow the tenants at, at, at 2NU to bring in the talent to do their work effectively and efficiently. And part of that is we have to make a unique environment that is special, that differentiates them from the, the, the office buildings that we might have done in the 1980s that are just silly. You know, big pompous lobby, yep. empty, nothing, and a bunch of rectangular floor plates above. Um, Skanska had a vision, and we shared the vision. Let's do something profound. Let's do something exceptional. Let's make a contribution to Seattle. So in order to accomplish that, that goal, you essentially had the canvas of an entire city block. Exactly. Uh, minus, minus the, the Diller. historic Diller Hotel. But, but I, I would say not minus, because the Diller is fabulous. Because the Diller gave, you, gave us a counterpoint to the design. It, 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 it allowed the scale to stay low, or we wanted the scale to... So it's a four-story Yeah, Italian it's a four-story Italianate. Um, it's got quite a checkered history that I don't fully understand. Uh, my colleague Nancy could give you all the details on that, but they've got a very cool bar, and I suspect that Diller will have a new life with the success of 2NU. But we love the challenge of maintaining the Diller in place. As one of the precepts, it's interesting, we have a secondary reputation as a firm, as we're, we're working on multiple projects right now, where we're basically cherishing a historic building. It may not necessarily be a spectacular historic building, but I'm a great believer in if the building has contributed to the dignity of the city, let's keep it, let's build on it, let's preserve it, let's respect it. And we're doing that right now in multiple cities around the country. So that's probably the, that process and that perspective is what influenced your eventual design Absolutely. and its relationship with Adela. No question. Great. Uh, so let's talk through some of the site considerations that you have. You talked about the use cases that were uh, in and around uh, this location and its adjacency uh, to the waterfront. But let's talk about the grade, the sunlight, and the shadows, and other things that influence what eventually came to be. Well, let me start. We had a, a big idea, which was to stitch the city together, <clears throat> to allow uh, people from all over the city to come here to be a part of it, but also to move through it. And we had problems of how do you take people coming up from Elliott Bay, bring them into the site, how do you cross through the site? It turns out the the grade on Seneca is so steep it's it's not even handicap workable you you can't get up it's so steep it's like San Francisco on steroids so what we did is we created a it's handicap from the front to the back from the side. front to the back so so what we did is we created a path through the site and then what we wanted to do is we wanted to lift the tower and if you're going to lift the tower um, what we want to do is bring light into the heart of the building and so we took advantage when when we you can get really wonderful southern and western light that flows in literally, you know, this is west, south, and the light flows in through the, uh, through the wonderful columns and brings vitality to that space. So as you're designing this stuff, you can appreciate that there are so many forces from um, the movement of people, the topography, the location of the transit system, to sunlight, to winds, all that is factored in to try to create something unique like the village below the 2NU Tower. And in addition to all of those natural considerations that you talked about and the, the ones of moving through, there were 
legal and zoning considerations oh, yes. as well. Rather Can you talk about some of those. Well, as 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 you know, there's a there was an alley that runs from uh, University of Seneca, and you will appreciate we spent great care studying that alley. If we left the alley alone, it would have really compromised the potential to restitch the city together. And it would have served no positive purpose, even though we, of course, looked at just let the alley stay. Other than picking up trash. Other than picking up trash, which that's not what you want. As obviously, in the current design, we've taken care of all that. And, so, and this is a good example. What we did is by vacating the alley, we showed the folks in Seattle that we could have a better place. And one of the, the things we're proud of is how uh, my partner, Tony Marchese, who led the project, was able to really bring consensus with the Seattle Design Review people to say, what's the right thing to do for Seattle? Uh, it turned out, what I've often learned, if you do the right thing for the city, you also do the right thing for the project and for your client. And it was a win-win by literally picking up the building and vacating the alley. So your client described the ground floor as needing to be very porous, not just for people in the building, but for everyone in the neighborhood. They included the public component um, that uh, had a performance art and landscaped open space for recreation. All in all, the bill for all of that totaled about $12 million. Why do you think this cost was necessary in light of the design process that you described of your firm? You know, independent of whether that's a real number or not, um, what I think they did, let's go back to from the perspective of the developer. What are they trying to achieve? They're trying to lure the best tenants to their project and give them a great environment in which they can their, their employees can do their work. And so not only do we take great care in thinking through the workplace, you know, the spaces up in here, but we, we wanted to create an environment at the base that is unlike anything you've experienced. And so I would argue if it was only $12 million, I actually suspect it was a bit more than, that. More than that. Likely more than that. It was a, it was a prudent investment. Uh, how to, why? Well, the city is thrilled. The entire building is leased. I believe the rents that are being achieved are in alignment with their expectations. Um, there's success all around. So, so why would one not want to invest something special to create a special building? So the, the outdoor component's not the only part of the ground floor. There's also the interior component. That's the urban village. Right. So that's the 80 foot, 85 foot high volume that has uh, two floors of food and beverage and retail. Right. Is that also intended uh, for the office tenants as well as the public a- at large? Absolutely. Um, and they're still in the process of leasing the retail. But what I found interesting, I, I, will, I will tell you, I, I was scratching my head as, as we were going through the process because um, Seattle is one of the most vibrant cities that you can imagine. And we've worked in other cities that, to be positive, were, are less vibrant. And so if our client had elected to not lift the tower and do an urban village, the project would probably have been perfectly successful. But they, they chose to do it because it was the right thing to make something special. So how those spaces are used is yet to be figured out. Um, I think they did it because their tenant base wanted the vitality. They didn't just want, you know, the classic, the office building comes down and you shove in a coffee shop that looks out on the main street and that's it. They, they wanted to go beyond that. So it's going to be a little bit of a, of a test to see how it plays out. But I will tell you, um, Skanska is committed to the city and their tenants. But for instance, they're going to have a full-time manager. And that manager, their, their job is going to be programming the public spaces, making sure the performances are occurring, the crafts fairs have come, the art shows are there. That's not and just to check the box. It's not just to check the box. This is, this is a real commitment. And uh, so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very impressed with Skanska's vision and commitment to do the right thing. Um, too, too, many, too many commercial developers would take an alternative path. Uh, you had mentioned earlier on in the, the description of the building's design thesis were the columns that were a key part to lifting uh, the urban village and creating that environment underneath. 
So these W-shaped uh, stilt-like columns are, uh, from my perspective, both structural and sculptural at the same time. Um, what led you to that design decision, uh, and what was the interplay with those uh, items with the office layouts above? So I'll go back as it's important. You know, this is a team sport, and one of our most respected colleagues is Ron Klemensik, probably one of the gift, most gifted structural engineers practicing today. And as we, we lifted the tower, um, the first thing the architects did is we'll put in a series of vertical stilts. And as we worked it through with Ron, we realized, because we do have seismic forces to deal with, that if we can do a series of, I'll call them W's or V's that are connected, we can actually do a better job stabilizing the torsional motion of the tower. And parenthetically, my partner Tony, he is a very gifted um, uh, artist. He saw the sculptural potential instantly. And we, we shared that with the client. And honestly, it was a combination of it was structurally efficient, potent visually, compelling, versus just a series of vertical vertical posts. And so it, it uh, existed nearly from the very beginning um, and has never changed. And then what happens is <clears throat> the offices above are relatively straightforward. And that's kind of the more boring part. I mean, it's an efficient L-shaped floor plate. For the most part, the columns are, are vertical. Where we do have seismic issues, we have a what we call the W, and you can see in this model right here, because the building wants to rotate. The core here stabilizes the major tower. Here it wants to rotate. So those W-shaped columns go up through there, and that acts like a, a transparent shear wall to stiffen up the building, and also, frankly, makes it more visually compelling. I'm glad you just mentioned the seismic considerations. I just finished binge-watching the big one, uh, an NPR <laughs> podcast about... Oh, that's uh, depressing. <laughs> it's <laughs> seismic activity in LA, so I'm, I'm glad, glad you asked that. Um, so I learned at your office last week that the, the columns that we talked about were built off-site in British Columbia. And the process of getting those massive columns to the site was utterly fascinating. Could you talk about some of the craziest logistical parts of actually getting that done? I, I'd like to not use the word crazy. It was just... A, <laughs> Ingenuity. It was, it was a uh, challenge that needed to be managed. Uh, the, the columns were fabricated in British Columbia. And we had the good fortune. So first of all, it was relatively close to the site. Our, our worldview is very often we're working on projects like this. We'll have most of it coming from all over the world. So the fact that we could get the columns close was a good thing, and it allowed the logistics to be solved. The majority of the 20 columns were able to be trucked uh, through the streets. We had to, we actually, uh, we, our client retained a logistics expert to help us on that, and we orchestrated a path uh, from the fabricating plant down to the site, and in the wee hours of, you know, a Sunday morning before the, we would truck the stuff in. That solved most of the columns, but the columns range between 70 and 170,000 pounds. So for the big whoppers, apparently they exceeded the capacity of some of the bridges between the fabrication plant and the construction site. So we put those on a barge, had to bring those down, and then we could roll them up on trucks up the hill to get it in place. But it all went perfectly, seamlessly. Um, you know, you can appreciate a logistical operation like that was very, very carefully managed. So ingenuitive, not crazy. In, in, exactly, not crazy, special. So uh, office buildings like this one are amongst the most energy intensive buildings that are built. Um, for example, two plus U included 6,000 tons of steel, 280,000 square feet of glass, and 250 miles of wire. How did you integrate green building practices into the design of this building? You know, the, the good news is the city of Seattle has some of the highest energy standards in the country. Um, and that's, that's actually a very good thing. And of course, we bring best, best practices to bear. So there are hundreds of elements that we pay attention to. It starts with the exterior enclosure. Um, if you were building in other cities, oftentimes you'll see floor to ceiling glass because you want to provide the maximum views to the tenants. In this case, we needed to tune that to maintain energy efficiency. So we have a very high performance exterior enclosure where the sill is not at the floor. It comes up about two foot four. And so we've controlled that. We have super efficient uh, mechanical systems where we have uh, radiant panels at the perimeter 
where we can bring in chilled water and hot water. It's very efficient to provide for a comfortable environment for the tenants in the building. Uh, everything, all the, all the roofs, we capture the rainwater. Um, and we can really, we have lots of green roofs wherever we can. So we've touched every button that we can within the limits of a commercial office building budget. Um, today we're at lead gold and we're certainly, the, our client continues to see if we can go beyond that. Uh, but it's certainly one of the most sustainable buildings of any commercial office building that's built in the last few years. Those uh, design strategies that you talked about, are those called passive building technologies? Well, there's, um, some are passive, uh, but you know, others, the, will be active other, well. others are going to be active, yeah. And then uh, what elements of the Northwest environment uh, that this building is in were you able to bring into the design? I th this is the fun part. It's very hard to say, well, what, why is this appropriate to the culture of the Northwest? Here versus Here versus else. somewhere else. Um, there is, there's a kind of a idiosyncrasies. Uh, I started going out to the, the you know, Seattle and, and north of the San Juan Islands 30 years ago. My uh, mother and father-in-law had a home in the San Juan Islands and I had the, and my brother-in-law worked in Seattle. So I had the privilege of seeing the city transform. And there's a, there's a kind of a wonderful idiosyncrasy in Seattle that I applaud. And I think part of what I think is quite special about 2NU is that it, it captures some of that. Um, you mentioned it when we met a couple days ago, the, the Pike Market, where they, you know, they throw the fish and the urban environment is charming but not particularly tailored. Yeah. And there's something, you know, as we created the urban village, we were trying to say, this feels to us like a Seattle maneuver. You know, I'm not sure we would do that in Houston, but you know, may maybe we would. Um, also, and again, this is, when Tony talks about the creation of those columns, um, I think he's referred to them many times as these giant redwoods or sequoias. And there's something there that just, it, it just, it feels right. Um, and then the way the light comes in, it's filtered through those. You have the shadows of the giant tree trunks on the piazza floor. It, you know, is it appropriate to Seattle? I defer to the folks that live in Seattle to answer that question. I feel like it is. I will tell you, we surely tried to make it be a part of that culture. Well, let's talk a little bit about the office portion of the building. So the office floors have 18,000 to 30,000 square foot floor plates, 10 foot ceilings and column free spaces. What kind of tenants did you have in mind when you were designing this? So what you, you have a responsibility as an architect uh, to your client to make sure that the building has the flexibility to meet lots of needs. So you will not be surprised when I tell you that we assumed it would be to the tech uh, tenants. And that is indeed, you know, as you know, it's indeed Dropbox um, and Qualtrics uh, among, among many others. But the building is really designed if in 20 years the world has changed and um, closed perimeter offices become important or an, a, a high profile law firm wants to move in we've designed the spaces to accommodate those needs. It does not need to be a tech a company. What we have done, which, which I think is very important, is on those upper floor plates, the core is actually snuggled up to uh, 2nd Avenue. And so it's away from the view. It's away from the view. So what we did is, is we put the people with the view, and then, and this is very unusual in commercial office building design, we put the typical required exit stairs are normally buried in the concrete. We move them to the perimeter with glass and light. And research has shown that if we have glass and light, people actually use the stairs six times more likely than if they were buried inside of a concrete core. And why is that important? Well, people will talk on a stair in a way they will not in an elevator. So just moving those stairs to the perimeter, we think makes the space more, more valuable. And so if you're on two floors or three floors or four floors, your employees will be using the stairs. Other small things, sounds silly, we put the washrooms on the perimeter with natural light. And why do washrooms have to be dismal? And so, um, you know, why not you know, put the washrooms where the views are not so spectacular and let the rest of the space be used for the employees to, to capture views out over Puget Sound. So those are kinds of things that are, are not your typical uh, commercial office building. They would not have been done 
even five years ago. Uh, they're relatively new. And I think it's, those are the little touches that in addition to the floor plates, flexibility size, major core, minor core, all the leasing things that your listeners probably don't want to hear about that make the building meet the business needs of the tenants that they're appealing to. Or the listeners that are developers like me. Deve love yeah, exactly, that. right. So. If you're a developer, you might care about this. Right? So what it sounds like then is the perspective that you took in the design was one that was less about what is the office design trend of the moment. Right. For example, open office, yes. uh, which has essentially seen its rise and fall over the course of the design of this project, to one that is more holistic about what would someone want here. And those stylistic changes can be made they can as come needed. And go. Well, you know, what we've learned is these buildings uh, will stand for a very long time. One of my first buildings that I collaborated with Caesar on is a, it's Wells Fargo Center uh, in Minneapolis. And you realize, you know, I've been in the game a little bit, but that building's been completed for a little over 25 years. Um, it won all the design awards. It was completed in 1986 or 87. But today, it is still considered the finest building in the city. It still commands the highest rents in the city. And that's after 25 years. I believe the useful life of a building like 2NU is going to be, you tell me, a century. So it would be presumptuous of all of us to say this is how those floor plates are going to be used because it's going to change. And we have to provide uh, a thoughtful design because true sustainability is creating a building that people will want to use today, tomorrow, and in four decades or five decades or six decades. And that's one reason, as I talked about earlier, I, I have a, one of my, my issues is taking historic buildings that maybe are thought to be past their prime and finding the elements within them that can be retooled and embrace them. And if you can save that building and not pour, pour it down, that's sustainable. And I'm hopeful that, that when my great-great-grandchildren are thinking about commercial real estate in Seattle, that this will be something that will wish to be saved. John, that's honestly refreshing because that speaks to the values of you as an architect and the values of your client as an owner and not just the 10-year uh, the pro forma. No, it's not a 10-year pro forma. And we've been very blessed. I mean, of course, many of our clients will, will do a project and if they can turn a fair profit, they may. But so many clients, uh, we're very fortunate. We work a lot with Heinz. And, and you know, Heinz is one of the most respected developers in the world. And they will always design and build for a decade-plus outlook. It's not a get in, do it, and flip the building. And so therefore, you make better decisions. You make better buildings. So let's talk a bit about the way that the tenants of the building will be fitting out and, and using their space. You as the, the architect of the building, did you have some direction or some say in the fit out of the individual floors or those are generally left? I'd, I'd love to tell you we do. And, in, and when I started in this profession, I truly thought as the architect that we could help counsel uh, the tenants into how they would use the space. Yeah. At the end of the day, we are, I was about to say, utterly powerless. I'm not sure that's quite true. But we do not have substantive power. What we can do though, and this is, is we can paint a picture. So for instance, it was absolute doctrinaire up until a few years ago that you had to put the silly two by two acoustical ceiling in. That's just what you had to do. Well, you don't need to do that. Uh, and so what we will typically encourage on 2 and you and some of our other projects is leave the ceiling off. We need to pay attention to organizing the mechanical system, the ceiling and the and sprinklers. Fireproofing and is necessary. Fireproofing and acoustics. But uh, if, you, if, you leave this, if you put the ceiling in, you have a 10-foot ceiling. If you take the ceiling off, you have a 13-foot ceiling. Yeah. And, it's, and frankly, it's much more interesting. And so for, for many of the tech tenants, that's what they'll do. If you're you know, a fancy uh, you know, consulting firm, maybe you'll, you'll put the ceiling in. But no, I wish we could solve that, but we, we can't. The tenant, the tenant rules. So I'm curious about your perspective on this because offices today seem to include a laundry list of features like a cafe, um, with a open kitchen area, phone booths, meditation rooms, napping areas, foosball, yep. all of this stuff. How do you make sense of all of that when you see the way that office spaces either in your building or others are actually eventually laid out and lived in? Well, what we have to do is the tenants will often choose to do a lot of that within their premises. 
the foosball nonsense, and it's beyond my. But but that's uh, that's their business. So you don't have a hand in choosing the foosball tables, we then. We don't choose the foosball table. But what we do, we have to. A tenant expects more than just an empty shell. They want to know that their employees. Now they may choose to put food in, but if they choose not to put food in, they need to know there's food. So it's it's not by mistake that Skanska is trying to promote food operations in the in the urban village. So we have a beautiful cafe. So when you come in the lobby, old days, come in the lobby, you got the pompous, you know, marble on the wall, marble on the floor, and kind of dead. Now you come into Two and You. There's a beautiful cafe. It flows on the lobby. There's vitality. So you, you, we've done that. We've got a great fitness room. Fitness, I think it's called fitness yoga, which is great. Um, it's not big, but it's nice. Now, tenants can use that, or they can choose to do it on their own. Uh, we used to never do a conference center. Now we have. Um, it's a it's a fabulous. We've got a series of conference rooms. There's sprinkled throughout the urban village, so you can sort of select the room you want, the vista you want, and that's made available to the tenants. So what it means is if you're a small tenant, like a, you know, maybe a, a small architect and you, you're, you're going to lease a few thousand square feet, you'd like to have a big room, you've got a big presentation for a, a, a special client, you can't afford to put that conference room in your space, but in the base of the building in the urban village, at the top of the stack right here, there's this fabulous conference room with a view out over Elliott Bay, that's available for you. So although the rent may be a little higher than you had hoped to pay, you can say, you know what, I'll be able to recruit the talent, I'll be able to leverage it, I've got the fitness, I've got the bikes, I've got the showers for the people to bike, I've got everything I need right there. And it's, so when you do the real careful analysis, it's a good investment to, to spend a few pennies more to rent that space than to go into a, a stripped down building. Maybe it's a lower rent, but you don't have the things that you need to be successful. And it sounds like that would be also better fitting of the needs of the, the clients for a developer anyway. Absolutely, it, it, it's a win-win. Or put another way, if a, if a developer ch chose not to put in fitness, conference center, cafe, they wouldn't, they wouldn't make it. Especially in a place like Seattle. Especially in a place like Seattle. But even, I don't mean to be tough on other cities, I won't get into specific, but even in, in lesser, less interesting <laughs> cities, they wouldn't make it. They, you have to do it. Uh, five, ten years ago, you, you could make a choice. Today, you have to do it. Uh, I want to take a moment to tell listeners about our host, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. This design firm has been serving clients worldwide for 55 years. From their offices in Princeton, New York City, and Washington, D.C., they provide planning, architecture, interior design, and graphic design services for many different building types. Hotels and resorts, office buildings, cultural and educational facilities, housing, healthcare, and civic structures are all part of their repertoire. With hundreds of design awards, it's clear that they care deeply about their profession and are keen to share their ideas widely. So let's turn to some of the business decisions of 2 plus U. So Skanska decided to develop this with no pre-leasing in place. From your experience in working with a wide variety of clients, is that a reflection of intelligent planning, insanity, or both? It's, I think it's intelligent planning, it's courage. Um, it's courage. Um, there are a lot of markets, and I, I cannot speak to Seattle. Um, I've done, maybe the firm has done, 20 million square feet of projects in Houston. I can talk to Houston. But there are some markets that you need because of the ExxonMobil project. Ex well, ExxonMobil and and many others, yeah. But there are some markets where the tenants want to kick the tires, and you know the market's there, but you're not going to get them. And there and in this world, the tech world, it's so fast changing that you, it, it's almost impossible for you to say, well, I, okay, in three and a half years, I'm going to need to take down forty-two thousand square feet. You just can't get there. And so we what, don't even know in three and a half months what you're doing. That's right. So what Skanska did that, that I think was, was appropriate is they said, I believe in the future of Seattle. Um, cross your fingers, the economy hangs in there, and we go. And I applaud that. There are a lot of people that in the same circumstance, they don't have the courage or the internal organization is such that it's so bureaucratic, nobody can make that call. And so they, what they do is they don't go forward and therefore they have a project that sits. And a project that sits is a bad project. The city is not revitalized. 
and nobody's going to make any money. So, so from that perspective, without the benefit of those leases signed early, Skanska invested in a holographic leasing center. Talk to us about that. Well, it, you know, it's essential. You cannot lease a project like this without communicating the vision in and way. in some way. And so in the old days, we'd build the models and so forth. Now what's happening with virtual reality and holographic systems, it's basically a way to really step into the building. And so, you know, you'll put on the little goggles and the potential customer can really experience the space. And so uh, Skanska has used it as a leasing tool, but we used it as a, as a critical design tool. Uh, we do this on all of our projects. Um, it's not fair to expect a client, as you're designing an important public space, to be able to read a plan and a section or an interior elevation and put it together. I mean, you just can't do it. With all due respect, most architects can't do it. And so- It is quite a strange notion to imagine that a client would be able to read and understand something as effectively as you, the design professional, preparing it. No, it's, it's impossible. So on, on all of our projects, uh, we build lots and lots of models. And now in the last probably five years, uh, we do virtual reality where we can put the goggles on and our clients can literally walk into the space and turn around just as they would naturally and see something. And then we use it as a tool so we can look up and say, that doesn't work the way the ceiling intersects with the wall. Um, it's very effective. And it's, although Skanska is a little ahead of the curve, I would argue um, any developer today must do virtual reality or die. I mean, it's, it's essential because you know, you're, the tenants are gonna expect to understand what they're, what they're dealing with. Um, and it's a small investment for a big return. So invest or die would be the perspective for developers. But what about for architecture firms and their adaption, uh, adaptation of technology such as that? Would you make the same statement? Ab absolutely. In fact, we were talking to Joe before the, the, uh, the, the podcast here. And you know he was showing me their significant investment at Michael Graves. And, and he recognizes that in order to share your vision with a client, you really have to have the technology. We, we've all reached that. So um, I, I can't imagine of all the firms that we compete with, they all have virtual reality. Um, and you know, it's, just, it's just an essential. And, and a sophisticated client will expect that. So let's fast forward from bringing the tenants into the space to them uh, enjoying and occupying that space. So. Skanska is employing a very high-touch concierge-style management you had mentioned earlier. Um, so I've heard of hotel-style residential, but what does hotel-style office mean? Well, let me back up. One of the things that we learned early on, you know, you learn a lot from your clients. I mean, and architects, they need to just take a breath because we think we know a lot and we do something, but our clients usually know more. And Lisa Picard and Murph McCullough, who led the project, there was an expression that they threw out early on called the warm hello. Now, it sounds perhaps a little silly, but the warm hello was an expression that we tried to capture in everything we did. That this is not a building, and I'm gonna answer your question, but I'm trying to take it back a little bit. This is something that influenced the architecture, that it was, that it was warm, it was accessible, it was rich, that the exterior enclosure, I'll compare and contrast. So, so many commercial office buildings are kind of a sheer sheen of, of glimmering glass. Uh, uh, we wanted to articulate floors, columns, so that a human being stands there. We wanted materials that you would touch and feel good about um, as a part of the warm hello. That warm hello extends in the lobby. Uh, one of my uh, concerns, and I have advocated to our clients for the last 10 years, is the days of the chap that, um, that was 300 pounds that wore the blue suit and, and was ready to kind of throw you out if you looked wrong at the front desk, that's not really a welcoming experience for a tenant or a tenant's guest. You just described downtown Manhattan. So. Exactly. So you, you need the hospitality industry has this really figured out. So whether you prefer Four Seasons or St. Regis or pick your flavor, when, you're, when you come into those facilities, you're very warmly welcomed. Um, they try to help you solve whatever problems you have. I think we've learned from the hospitality industry. And, um, and our clients today have made that shift. And so hopefully 
Um, I would argue when I refer to the, the reception component, I refer to them as ambassadors or concierge. I don't refer to them as a, as, a, as a security guard, even though, yes, indeed, there's a security component. They need to, the, the thinking needs to be revised. Um, and that human touch, it's not, it's not just hospitality, it's human. The warm hello has, is finding its way into commercial office. So that sounds like another area where Skanska has chosen to invest in order to better meet the needs Absolutely. of their tenants and to stay ahead of their competition. That's exactly correct. Okay. That's exactly correct. So now let's talk about the time frame of 2 plus U. You were engaged on this project in 2014. Skanska got permits in 2016 and construction ended in 2019. What are some of the challenges in staffing a large project that sprawls over five years uh, as team members perhaps come and go? Well, I'm really proud. Um, we're old-fashioned as a firm uh, in the sense that we, I don't think we have ever played musical chairs with our clients. And so on this project, um, you know, we, the project has been led on a nearly daily basis by Anthony Marchese, my partner, by Nancy Clayton, our senior associate, uh, Adrian Nelson. The th those three individuals, and they've been supported by uh, the vast team at Picard Shelton, those three individuals have been on the project from day one, from the first hackathon conversation all the way through. Now, why is that? I, I think one of is we've been able to create a, a welcoming, supportive environment at Picard Shelton. A warm so, hello. A warm hello. And our staff, you know, it's been wonderful because they've been there on average many years. Uh, people don't go. If they, if they choose to leave, typically um, tonight we're with a young man, Jonathan Cook. Jonathan's going to go off to get his master's and either at Princeton or Yale. So when someone leaves, that's why they leave. Hopefully they come back. But we have been very proud there's very little turnover in spite of the fact that we've been on the project for six years. So... Uh in terms of the external team as well, there are many outside firms, and you mentioned uh, the structural engineer uh, earlier on. Could you talk about some of the other firms that you had an opportunity to work with uh, on this massive sure. project? So as a part of our business model, um, for every project that Picard Chilton is engaged to design, we work with an architect of record or an executive architect, depending on how you want to refer to it. And that is, they're a partner, we work side by side, they're in every meeting. Um, and in fact, they, um, they help bring a technical balance. We think it's a perfect balance of design and technical. And it's not that we don't have technical skills, we do. It's not that they don't have design, they do. But together you have slightly different, um, different focus. And we think a client is served at the highest level by bringing that together. So on a project like this, uh, Kendall Heaton and John O'Connell is the, is the managing partner have been our partner on this. And uh, I'm proud to say we have probably done 30 projects with Kendall Heaton. And they're one of the most respected architects practicing anywhere on the planet. And, um, and so it's a great partnership. And of course, they don't do it by themselves. So I mentioned Ron Clemensic at MKA. Of course, on the mechanical side, you know, we're working with um, the WSP firm out of Seattle on the landscape. It's the Swift firm. And you, you can appreciate on a project of this complexity, there is a broad range of characters that all have their voice. And so we, you know, put it together and make hopefully a tasty Buddha base. And, you know, you add a little bit of this and add a little bit of that and it, it makes it special. But the, the days of the genius architect going off in their garret and creating the vision, that's a, that's a myth. Um, it, it's, it, and it always I mean, was a myth. I think, I think it always was a myth. But... Um, Mr. Wright did an excellent job of perpetrating that myth, but, but it is a team sport. So right now you're working on another large office building in Seattle with Skanska uh, on Northeast 8th Street. So no pre-leases again. What, what other similarities would you say there are between you these know, two it's, buildings? It, it's interesting. There are so many. Um, I'll start with what's different. We're not lifting the building. Okay. Um, because there is no, there, there was a real urban design need here to lift. There's not here. But what we are doing is, for site constraints, the floor plate is a little bit tricky. You can't do the classic shoebox. 
And so what we're doing is it's a kind of a beautiful lozenge when shape. When you say shoebox, you mean a rectangular folder? Yeah, uh, if, if, if you look at 95-7% of the commercial office buildings designed and built, they're, they're shoeboxes. They're nominally 110 by 120 by 210 or 240. Oh, okay. That's what they are. And I won't get into why, but that's what they are. So this is not. It's a kind of a lozenge shape, and the core is set to side. But in order to make the building work cost-effectively structurally, much of the framing is a series of diagonals on the perimeter because you know very well the seismic counts. And we could not, in this case, we could use the core to do a lot of the work for us. In the case in the Bellevue project, Northeast 8, we, we put the structure on the outside. But for instance, now we haven't talked about here, uh, there are some wonderful balconies that we've integrated into 2 and U, which are, provide really great experiences for the tenants to come out and engage the outside. And in Seattle, it's a wonderful climate. You can do that. So we'll, we'll do the it's same. It's really unusual. I it's think. very unusual. We, we have been advocating this for about a decade. Most of our clients will say, yeah, it's a good idea. Uh, maybe not, because it costs a little more. That balcony, um, and I, I have resources to back it up, will typically generate, from the developer's perspective, a 20% on average, a 20% premium in the rents that are charged on the floor that has the balcony. And so I would say in the last three years, that knowledge is finding its way through the market and suddenly balconies are being developed on commercial office buildings. Uh, and, and it's real. It's, we've, we've got enough buildings that we can say, look at that building, that building, that building, that building, and the rents have gone up. Or the deal was made because that balcony or an adjacent roof garden created a unique experience for the tenants and they said, I want to be in that building. So sign me up. So it sounds like those changes in a particular market happen because of firms that decide to uh, drive that change either on the client side or on the designer side. Exactly. And so what we do is, as, as architects, we'll put these ideas out there and then have a debate with our clients. And so in the case of our project with Skanskin Bellevue, many of the characteristics that I think are interesting about Tuan you will find their way to that project, although if you were to look at it, it, it looks like a very different building. It doesn't, it, doesn't look like a, it doesn't look like a brother or sister, maybe a cousin, but it's very, very different. But the principles that guide it, which I think is what's important, are there. The, the vitality at the, at the street, the gardens, the parks, the restaurants, the, the sense of the, the public spaces, they're just spectacular and they're really wonderful. And to, to be fair, it wouldn't be right for that building to be a twin or a brother and sister because all of those considerations that go in, even if the process is the same, right. all those considerations would be very unique. That's, e that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and you, want, you want a building that, that has depth of underlying principles but is appropriate to the specific urban condition it finds itself in. Okay. And sometimes that's a little hard. Fortunately, in, in Seattle and Bellevue, you know, the, the urban context is rich enough that it gives you something to work on. It gets complicated in other cities where there's, you don't have that richness. So let's take a bird's eye perspective. How does 2 plus U fit into the overall portfolio for your firm? I think when we, let's step out in you know, 20 years out and we look back, I think 2 and U is gonna mark uh, an important transition. Uh, I would argue we've created some very beautiful uh, workplace environments for the, for the previous 20 years. Um, the, the revolution in our office started with our, our real corporate work. For instance, ExxonMobil is quite, um, I won't say revolutionary, but we're doing some things that are very unusual with access to daylight and views. And I think 2 and U marks some of those ideas being introduced into a multi-tenanted commercial urban building. And um, th for me, that's why it's important. You know, it's, a, it's an intriguing building. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not here talking with you. My, if Tony were here, he could talk to you for uh, two hours about the beautiful aesthetics. I'm just talking about the principles, and I think the principles that underlie this building are really important, and I think they point to a, to a different path in the future. So this will be a very important building, and it's one of the reasons that I, I wanted to share it with you tonight. As, as you can appreciate, we have many many special children to choose from to discuss, but this was this is a special one. So my guess is that's difficult to, to pick one favorite, but this is one that's amongst the favorites. It is, and, and it's, 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 it's interesting because um, I'm proud to say I had very, very little to do with this project. 
I, I, I give full credit to Nancy Clayton and Tony and Adrian for leading the project. So you and as the design principal had very little to do with Very little with to do with this project. Very little to do with the project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, 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 and we can get into how the firm works. There are some projects where uh, I practically draw every little detail. That, this is not one of them. And the reason I, I'm saying that, because I want to highlight uh, why I put this up as the project to talk about, because I think it's so important. And, and it's, it's not like I'm sitting there sharing my, my special child with you. It's the, it's the firm's special child. Um, th that's it for my questions, John. So I wanted to leave time for a few questions from the audience. I have a question. Of course. I think this is a fascinating uh, story about a collaboration between a developer and an architect who are very like-minded. We've seen this in your other work, maybe ExxonMobil, right. where you have a like-mindedness with your corporate client. How do you go about um, sorting through the asks that you might have or the pursuits that you might have with clients to make sure that your clients and you, whether it's a, a speculative building or our corporate headquarters are like-minded and you can yeah. produce the kind of wonderful work that, you, that you're known for? It's a great question. Um, it's very hard. Um, it, well, let me back up. To answer it, 90% of our projects are, at least at the last time we looked at it, are repeat clients. And so we're building on a foundation of knowledge and trust. We, we know what they expect and we can build upon that. Where it gets complicated is you have a new relationship and you don't know what you're getting into. And you may, we do want to work with clients that care. And there, you, you know very well, there are some uh, commercially focused real estate folks who don't truly care about the city. And we don't want to be affiliated with somebody that just wants to, to buy our expertise or if we have a name, our name. We want shared ideals. And so, honestly, we do significant research before we'll even go meet with them. And then what we try to do is we try to slow down the selection process long enough that we can make sure we align expectations. Um, and there have, there have been uh, actually many situations where uh, uh, my, Bill and I were just telling a story the other day of a, of a developer who was very excited to hire us for a major project in the South. And um, we could just tell, we were in a meeting listening to this guy you know blow his horn for an hour so Bill and I were across the table from one another we didn't even have a chance to talk we just looked at one another and we knew this guy was not our cup of tea and so we very gracefully thanked him for the opportunity and the consideration and we said goodbye um, so we try to get that sorted out um, I don't think honestly if I think back I don't I cannot think of a client that has not turned out to be a good client. We've been very fortunate because I, I think something happens. I think there's a, there's a self-selection that occurs somewhere. And um, we've not been into a situation where you know, it's uncomfortable. So. Ms. Clayton, you, you, you should know all the tough questions to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I could ask another question. Then, sure. Yeah. Yeah, since you, since you said so, um, I, I've always been impressed with the 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 firms that have come out of Cesar Pelli's office. Um, not only because of the the consideration of the urban fabric or the the quality of the architecture, but because of a, what must have been an office culture. And I was wondering if your experience at, at the, the Pelly firm and the way you've tried to fashion your own firm have some relationship in terms of the nurturing culture and being yep. able to encourage such a longevity among your staff. There's no question. Um, I was tapped by Caesar. I was, I'd been his student in the studio. I was tapped as his first employee when he rebuilt the company in 1979. Um, I love the man, I respect the man. Uh, you could not help. Uh, and he had, he built a firm of trust um, and he, he clearly cares passionately about his clients, but, but we learned many lessons. You know, he had an expression that, that I've never forgotten. He said, um, the building is more important than the architect, but the city is more important than the building. And that's an interesting way of kind of synthesizing his focus. 
So as we've looked at the creation of Picard Shilton, what uh, Bill and Tony and I have done is we've basically taken the positive experiences that we appreciated with Caesar or Bill with Bi Bill worked for another Saren and protege, uh, Leonard Parker. And so we've kind of put this all together. And so we see ourselves as the, the children of this legacy um, and, we, and we pay attention to it. And, and um, we try to do the right things. So uh, I don't know, I'm too close to it to know if we've done a good job of mapping on to what I, all well, the positives I've experienced at Caesars, but we surely tried. It's been a part of, we've done it uh, openly and, and, and being a very aware of that. Um, and we'll see. So it's been great fun. So thank you so much for joining us. We thank you. It's been great fun. Thank you. Thanks for having us come to, to beautiful Princeton. Absolutely. Uh, next time I'll be interviewing Martin Ditto, the founder and CEO of Ditto Residential. His development company has a large portfolio of creative historic renovation and new construction projects in the Metro DC area. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been Conversations with Michael Graves. Thank you. Okay.